0: good evening. It's good to be with you and good to see you all this evening. That hymn is a new one for us, uh, but it's one that I love very much. I didn't choose it, but I'm glad that it was chosen. And um, if you are one who listens to um, music via some service or CDs, you may be familiar with Fernando Ortega, who um, has a... A version of that with a different arrangement that's also quite beautiful. And if you haven't heard that one, I would commend that to you uh, for your encouragement this week. Just to find my song is a love unknown as he performs it. Well, you'll find your place this evening in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And um, what I intend to do in this new year and the evenings as we gather together is begin a series. Working through the epistles of John. Uh, beginning, of course, with 1 John 1. And while you're finding your place, I I want to encourage you to use your imagination a little bit and imagine yourself with me as a group of Christians in the early church in and around Ephesus in the years around about 90 A.D., within uh, 10 years or so of that year. We live in the first century in this early church we live at a time when nearly all of the apostles have died. Peter and Paul were martyred almost 30 years prior in the persecutions under Nero, and in short order, the other apostles and the first generation of Christians and the leaders in the earliest churches have fallen off the scene. Some have been martyred and some have died of natural causes, but we are left as a second generation, if you will, of Christians in the early church, and we're wondering how we're going to keep the churches going. Of course, we know that the Lord is the one who will keep them going, and yet we realize that a great responsibility has fallen to us. There are threats. There's a constant threat of persecution. Indeed, intense persecutions have arisen at different times, sporadically throughout the empire. And you probably know people who have been martyred. You may have family members who gave their lives in the arena or killed in some some kind of persecution. You know others who have suffered, been beaten or imprisoned, or so on and so forth. And so you know that there's always this threat, this constant possibility that persecution may arise. But we also face a different kind of threat. You see, you have heard the report of what the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders some years before. Recorded in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, where he said to them, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You also know that when Paul wrote his first letter to Timothy, he, says to, he said to him in 1 Timothy 1, 3 to 4, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And now, 30 or so years on, these things have come to pass in your midst. You didn't know Timothy personally, But you knew him as a strong defender of the faith, and you knew him as a faithful preacher of God's Word, one who was discipled by Paul himself. And yet he is gone, and he's not able to defend the church against these false teachers. And you and all of us together are wondering, what are we to do? How are we to discern truth from error? How are we to know what is right and what is godly? And part of the problem is that these false teachers, as they arise, are men with great charisma and and great leadership ability. They have confidence in what they're saying, and so many are following them, and as many follow them, you're a bit unsettled. You wonder, maybe that's the right path. Am I the one who's not quite in the right way? And yet you know deep down that there's something not quite right about them, but you can't place your finger on it. And so you're unsettled. You're not sure. What are you to make of what is going on? How can you know who is right? How can you know who the true representatives of God and His Word are? Well, if you've imagined yourself in this setting, you have a good sense of the context in which John writes his letter, his first letter. You see, he writes to a fledgling congregation or group of churches, or, uh, early collection of churches that have had false teachers arise from their midst and lead some out of the church. And yet, because he is perhaps the last surviving apostle, he is uniquely situated to speak into their lives and to redirect them back to the truth so that they might be firmly grounded with assurance And what they received from the very beginning. And as we think about what John has for us in this letter and what he teaches us, three questions confront us. Three questions that we're going to have to ask. And the first is this as I've already said, how can we know the true Christian faith and reject what is false? You see, the problem with false teaching is that it's like a virus. It's constantly mutating. It's constantly changing. One false teaching crops up. Then it's refuted only for another to come up in its place. And soon enough, there are so many around that it's hard to distinguish one from another. It's hard to make heads or tails of it. It's a bewildering array of false teachings. Of course, you can look back historically at them and see, well, the false ones were the ones that didn't persist. They didn't last In the moment, you don't have that privilege of looking down 10, 20 years down the line, 100 years down the line, and saying, well, what will happen to this particular one? Yet we, of course, do have the privilege of looking back over 2,000 years of Christian history, being able to see simple, straightforward truths that have been handed down from the beginning. So we look to John as one who was from the beginning an apostle and an eyewitness, who gives us a testimony and teaches us how to answer this question. How can we know the true Christian faith and reject what is false? The second question which follows from it is this. What are we to make of, this, of the vast array of Christians in our own day? How can we recognize faithful Christians, even if we disagree with them on significant matters, and distinguish them from those who aren't truly Christians, those who might claim the name of Christ and yet are not really in the true Christian faith. You see, we, we can walk around our town and we see churches that bear the name Lutheran or Baptist or Methodist. And then we can add all kinds of adjectives to describe this particular type of Baptist, or the particular type of Presbyterian. And yet what we really want to know at the end of the day, even though we would not have share fellowship with all of these churches, is is this a church of true believers? Or is this an offshoot of the uh, church, an offshoot of false teaching, do you see? How can we make that distinction? These are questions that John is going to help us to answer. And a third question, which is more personal and therefore more urgent, more direct to our situation, is how can we know that we are true Christians? How can I know that I really have eternal life? This is ultimately the reason John wrote this first letter, so that we might have assurance, he's going to say at the end of this letter, that we might know that we have eternal life. And so we ask these three questions. How can we know what is true? How can we know who has the truth, who believes the truth, who really is a Christian? And how can we know if we have the truth, if we have eternal life? We also have to ask a question about John. How can we know that we can trust him? How do we know that he's a trustworthy witness? Those three questions that I presented to you are questions we're going to revisit again and again in the weeks to come as we go through, expositorily through 1 John. But this morning, or excuse me, this evening, what we're going to look at and focus on is John himself. How do we know that John is a trustworthy witness who can guide us in these things? And for that, we come to these first four verses. And So if you found your place, would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in chapter 1 of 1 John, verse 1. The apostle writes, "...that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Heavenly Father, this evening we come before you knowing that you are a God who is true in all way, in every way. You cannot lie. And you are faithful in all your dealings. You are faithful to all that you have spoken. You are the God who speaks truly and certainly, and brings to pass all your purposes. And so we know, O Lord, that your word is true. We know that you graciously guide your people into all truth through your word, powered by the Spirit, whom you've sent into our lives. So we pray now, Lord, that you would guide us in the way of truth, that you would guide us by your word, that you would impart it to our minds and our hearts, that you would give us faith to believe and courage to persevere in this life in the face of all kinds of threats, threats from without and threats from within if they should come, holding steadfastly to the word of life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're familiar with John's gospel, you should immediately notice the similarity between this letter and the gospel. Turn back for a moment with me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1 verse 1 and 2 we read these words, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here in 1st John we read that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And right away, two features confront us that are shared between these two texts. One is the idea of the beginning, that, this is, uh, that the word of life about which John writes is one who is from the beginning, and he calls him the word of life. Now you know from John chapter 1 that the word is a way that John uses to speak about Jesus. He's talking about a person, not just a thing, not just an abstract quality, not just an idea, but a person, our Lord Jesus Christ. But we wonder then, why does John call him the Word? Let me suggest to you that the answer is found in what God's Word is in Scripture. That is, how God reveals himself to his people. You can reflect back on Deuteronomy chapter 4, for instance. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights, we've been walking through Deuteronomy as we're thinking about the fear of the Lord. And there in Deuteronomy 4, you'll recall in verse 12, we read these words where Moses is speaking to the people of Israel and he's reminding them of their experience at Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the law and he says this, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the the fire, You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. The point that Moses is making in that context is that the people should not make graven images to represent the Lord. They should keep the first and second commandment. They should make no graven image. But the reason is that God did not reveal himself to the people of Israel in the form of a person or a beast or or the sun or the moon or the stars or any other form. But he revealed them to himself to them by speaking. You see, God's own self revelation is bound up with his word. And in the fullest way, then, Jesus is the word of God because he is the fullest, clearest, final self revelation of our God. And so John, John chapter 1, goes on to say in verse 14. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So you see what John is saying. Yes, God revealed Himself through the giving of the law to Moses when He spoke to the people of Israel, and they saw no form, but in a fuller way, in a final way, in a better way. God has revealed Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, He is the Word. Of God. But he calls him in 1 John chapter 1 not merely the Word, but the Word of life. This idea also comes from, is seen in his Gospel. For he'll go on to say in that first chapter, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. That true life, eternal life, is bound up. With coming to Christ, coming to this one who is the Word. And so here in the beginning of First John, John refers to Christ in this way, similar to his gospel, as the Word of Life. He is the one who is from the beginning. That means he is eternal, he is preexistent. He did not come into being. He was not created. He was not born. In a way where that was the beginning of his existence. But he is the one who was with God and was God. The one through whom, John says in his gospel, all things were made, and about, he said, then goes on to say, apart from him, nothing was made that was made. In other words, of all the things that are made, they were made through Christ, through Jesus, and nothing that has nothing that uh, has been made came into being apart from Him. Well, therefore, He cannot be a thing that was made. You see? One does not make Himself. He is the eternal Son of God, always existing forever and ever. Thus John says of Him, that the One who was from the beginning. This is what First John is about, and the primary answer to our question, how can we know the truth, is bound up with the question, what do I say about Jesus? What do I say about who He is? What do I say about what He has done? What do I say about His relationship to God? You see? We'll see in the weeks to come that those false teachers that arose in these early churches... They say wrong things about who Jesus is and what He has done and what His relationship is to God and also what their relationship is to Him. John will refute those, but we still need to come back to this question. Why is John qualified to tell us what is true concerning Him? And the answer is there for us in what He says in verse 1. That which we have heard that which we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Whatever we say about John, we must recognize this. He is one who is claiming to have been an eyewitness of the word of life. He heard him. He saw him. When he says he looked upon him, this is not, the, is not just redundant, not just repeating himself. And he's not just saying I gave him a passing glance. It's the idea of gazing intently at a thing, studying it and understanding its significance. Well, in this case, gazing intently at a person, studying him and understanding his significance. You see? That's what John is saying about himself. It's so what the one we have heard, the one we have seen with our eyes that we've looked upon and have touched. And there, touched with our hands goes beyond just merely touching something, but the idea of examining something, turning it over, considering it. We think of Thomas when Christ rose and appeared to Thomas and said, touch my side, touch my hands, see my wounds, see that it is me. They had beheld the risen Lord. When we began our study in Luke in the morning, we talked about this idea. And I I want to say it again and repeat some of these texts again because of how important it is. One of the reasons why we know that we can trust John and Paul and Peter and all of the New Testament writers is because what they wrote was based in eyewitness testimony. It was founded in the fact that the word of life was one whom they beheld. Listen again, then, to these passages I read on that first Sunday. Second Peter, 1:16 through18. Here Peter speaks about the Transfiguration, and he says, "For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of His majesty. For when, we rece- when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Peter says, I was there, I heard, I saw, I understood. So too, we recall that Luke, at the beginning of his gospel said that he had compiled this gospel based on the testimony delivered by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And similarly, John writes at the end of his gospel, in John 21, verse 24, after he is part of one of the narratives that unfolds after Jesus' resurrection, he says, this is the disciple referring to himself who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And why do we know that it's true? Because he was there, he saw it. He was an eyewitness. Even Paul, even Paul, who witnessed the risen Lord on the Damascus road, said of the resurrected Christ that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me. And this, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul presents as proof that the resurrection is true. Because Christ's resurrection is true. Therefore, our resurrection is assured. In other words, the testimony of the apostles and the disciples of Jesus could be verified because the testimony of one witness could be tested against the testimony of another. It was rooted in that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands as John puts it. And this is so important to John that he says it again and again in this passage. Look at verse 2. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And again in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. If we didn't get it the second time, we didn't get it the first time, let us get it the third time. For John, it's important that his readers know that he's telling us, he's writing to us about what he witnessed. And yet, he doesn't write alone. He's he's not saying that which I saw, that which I heard, that which I touched, that which we saw, we heard and we touched, that he with all of the apostles and all of the disciples of our Lord were eyewitnesses. And so it's not just trusting the testimony of one man who could falsify his testimony, and not just trusting the testimony of two witnesses who can get together and conspire to concoct some crazy story, not just three witnesses who in certain circumstances might be able to get together and come up with a, a, a good story to tell some people, but hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw Christ, whose testimony is recorded for us in the Gospels and in the epistles too, like this one. We saw the Word, he says. We understood Him, Him that we proclaim to you. And so we have good reason to trust Him. He's not like a famous politician of whom I'm reminded, who some years ago ran for office, and claimed that he had an invincible plan to solve some of our nation's problems. Of course, he couldn't tell us the plan. I wasn't born at the time, but he couldn't tell us the plan, lest his opponent should know it, and it would ruin his chance of winning winning the presidency. Then, upon his election, and after after a period of time, some years later, when he was asked whether he had such an invincible plan, well, the answer, of course, was, oh, no. That was just something he said to get elected. John is not like that. Because John has seen something and he has beheld something. He doesn't hoard it. He doesn't hide it. He doesn't say, this is just mine. What does he say again and again? The life was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And again, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. John is not hiding his plan or hiding his message or only releasing a little bit at a time, but he's sharing the message boldly and fully with everyone who will come to Christ by faith. And it makes great sense why John would do this, because John recognizes that the the word of life was not made manifest to him because he was so righteous. And Jesus Christ was not revealed to him because he was so smart. He didn't figure it out by his own wisdom, but he just says it was made manifest to us. That is, a divine passive, meaning God chose in his will In his providence to reveal to us the word of life why not because of anything in john and therefore it follows that john has no right to keep it to himself as the old saying goes he's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread he recognizes that this message and this truth and this person was revealed to him only by god's grace And so he does not hide it. He does not release a little bit of time. He doesn't charge exorbitant fees for access to this message. But he freely received it and he freely proclaims it. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Do you see? John is not only beheld the word but he is sharing the word. This is another reason why we ought to be disposed to trust him as a, te- as a witness. It's not just because he can claim to be an eyewitness, and not just because we can look, we can say that in history, the early church had ample opportunity to test, to verify his testimony against the testimony of dozens, hundreds of other eyewitnesses, but it's also because of the attitude that he reflects in his own life. You see, that politician who I referenced was one who was self-seeking. He was keeping the thing that wasn't ultimately true secret because he wasn't ultimately a trustworthy person. His attitude was one of deceit, of self-seeking, which should have have, uh, led people to say, this is not a trustworthy witness. Or similarly, you might think, for example, of some person who is uh, hawking um, advice for investments, saying you ought to invest in these five stocks in the new year. They're, they're surefire winners. And you read the article about five stocks about that you're supposed to invest in, and you come to the end of the article, and you realize that there's some other, other list. And the stock picker says if you want the real list, better list, you know, it's just a small monthly fee. And then every month I'll send you a list of... Investment choices, and th- this is the real one. I only give it to my subscribers. I only give it to people who are willing to give me a mo- some money. And what, do you, what do you do when you come to that line at the end of this article that's telling you, that article that has told you five investments that you ought to make? You don't trust the five investments that, you, that, he, just that he just advised you to take. You don't trust that this is a trustworthy person because he's hiding something. He's holding something back so he can get something from you. And he's proving himself to be a deceiver, at least for his own personal gain. Maybe then, you'd be able to trust if you subscribed and got the real list. But how can you know if that real list is trustworthy either? This is a person who's clearly out out to make money. And if he was such a great investor and knew all the right stocks to pick, why would he need to make money off of you? Do you see? That's how that works. We're not predisposed to trust those kinds of people although many people fall prey to those lines of deceit. But John is not like that. Look how different he is. The Word was made manifest to us. and We proclaim it to you. We want you to have what we have. We're not charging anything. We're not asking anything from you except for you to believe what we believe. Because what we've graciously received from God we proclaim to you that you might graciously receive the same. So we see that because He is not just one who beheld the Word, but one who freely shares the Word, He is one that we ought to trust. There's something further in the sharing of the Word that we need to consider that also should cause us to look at John as a trustworthy witness. He doesn't just share this news with us because it's good news. He shares this news with us because he wants us to have a a relationship with him and with the living God. Look at what he says. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to see in the weeks to come that the false teachers show themselves to be a group of people who are exactly opposite to John. They are people who claim that they know the truth not because they've been eyewitnesses of of Christ, not because they've seen the truth, but because they have a special and secret knowledge that isn't accessible to anyone else and they claim to have some kind of special group, the secret group that not everyone can have access to. Only those who have this special knowledge, only those who are on the inside, and not everybody's invited, maybe we'll let you in, but many of you we we won't let in, is their message. We have our group, and we're not going to let anyone else into it. John, on the other hand, opens the door wide open. This is my message that I proclaim. What I'm calling for you to do is to embrace the truth so that you can have full fellowship, full access. He's not saying, I'm an apostle, I'm up here, you're down there, and you can't come too close. He's saying, I want that fellowship with you. And what he says after that is extraordinary because our fellowship, unlike their fellowship, these guys who claim to have the inside track, claim to have all the right knowledge. Their fellowship doesn't have what ours has because theirs is not with the triune God. But our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And of course, He doesn't say it right there, but the means by which we have that fellowship is through the Spirit of God working in us uniting us to Christ. It is fellowship with the God who made us It's a return to Eden, if you will, to that joyful fellowship that was lost when Adam and Eve took the fruit in hand and rebelled against God. And it's joyful fellowship that is restored through the word of life, our Lord who died for us. That's the message that John proclaims, that we might have fellowship with him and with all the Christians in the world who've ever lived in all of history Fellowship that we can't fully experience now in this life, but we will fully experience in eternity as we gather around the throne. And yet that one that we can experience now in part, in the congregation where God has planted us together as a church, and one that we can experience truly with God through communion with Him, through His Word, through worship, through prayer, through the Spirit working in our lives. That's what John calls us to. And so, we ought to trust him. Now, John gives us, in conclusion, the reason why he's writing these things. We might suspect, if we were skeptical or suspicious, that John is writing these things because, along the line, he's going to reveal that tagline at the end. Here's what I want from you. I want a little bit of money. I want something else. Maybe I want some prestige. I want to start a movement. Or I want you to think I'm really great. No. We are writing these things to you, John says, so that our joy may be complete. He just wants joy. And the way that that joy is going to be complete is through the fellowship that we enjoy together. You see? Our joy is rooted in our fellowship together. It's rooted in the fact that God has taken us and united us together as a family. As people who are redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ. And has not only united us together as a family of the redeemed, but united us with Himself. So that we have a true and lasting joy. One that will endure into eternity. And even in the midst of this life that is uh, marked by sorrows of various kinds and trials of various kinds, we know that we can have joy in that fellowship, in that unity. But as John recognizes, we won't have that joy if we reject that fellowship for another, for a fellowship that is not rooted in the truth, that is rooted in, uh, in seeking our own gain. And seeking our own self interests and seeking what we want merely in our uh, fleshly desires. But if we turn from that and seek what's good for one another and seek to serve one another and seek to love one another, we'll find true and lasting joy. And so, again, John shows us that be, his concern is for us and for our good and for our benefit. For all these reasons, we say here is a trustworthy witness. Here is one who wants what's good for me. Here is one who is reliable in his testimony. Here is one who can guide me, who can teach me how I can discern truth from error, how I can discern what is right and wrong, how I can ultimately know who my Lord is, and what he is like, and what is true about him. And that's what we're going to find in this letter through and through, we're going to see the testimony of a man who has been turned from a man who is self-seeking, and we see that in the Gospels, a man who thought merely of his own selfish ambition, to a man whose interests were completely redirected outward from himself to others, to serving others, and to protecting others, and to guiding others, and to encouraging others in their faith. This is the purpose of 1 John. In the end, we might have completeness of joy. Now, we have to ask questions in application. Because there's a great deal that we can learn from John, but we always need to come back and ask the question, therefore, what kind of people ought we to be? How ought this to affect our lives? How ought this to change us? Let me suggest three ways that we can apply this passage in our lives. First, we can apply it by being confident as we proclaim the gospel to others. We have great reason for confidence as we share the gospel. But that confidence isn't necessarily rooted in our own ability. And it shouldn't be rooted in our own ability. How many of us are as persuasive as Abraham Lincoln on a debate stage how many of us can sell anything give us any product that uh, you want to hawk volcano insurance and we'll sell it to whoever who who among us is that persuasive not me I failed as a salesman but our confidence is not in ourselves our confidence is in the trustworthy word God Made manifest. He made known the word of life. John's confidence was in the fact that he was seen and he was beheld and he was understood. And we only have to take that testimony and proclaim it to others that the one who is the word of life, he has been seen and has been heard and has been understood. And that testimony has been passed on again and again through 2,000 years and it has endured until now. There is still a church. There are many heretical groups that have arisen in history and they are not around anymore. But There is still a church of Jesus Christ that meets all across the world and is growing every day. We don't have to be the best preachers or the best evangelists. We don't need to worry about that. We can have confidence as we share the gospel because we know that it's true and that it's trustworthy. Even in spite of our meager efforts, God continues to testify to its truth. So share boldly and share with confidence and don't worry about your own ability to answer every single question or to say every little thing. Second, we ought to be a people that seeks joyful fellowship with one another. Our life together is just that, life together. There's no such thing as a free agent Christian. You know, that idea of a Christian who says, "Just just me, my Bible, and a grassy field under a tree. It's just me and my Bible and my coffee in the morning. I don't need the church, it's just a bunch of hypocrites. There's no such thing as a Christian who lives his life like that. God redeemed us to bring us into fellowship with other believers and into fellowship with himself. And the one who rejects the fellowship of the church is one who's rejecting fellowship with the triune God. We're not meant to be Christians out on our own. And yet, we have to admit, sometimes we're tempted to say, you know what, maybe I need a break, I need a season away, I need some time away from the fellowship of the church. Maybe because I've been hurt. Maybe because I've been, I feel like I've been wronged or I've been slighted or I've been ignored or I'm just so tired of the politics or all of the things that happen. And yet, the early churches had all those problems. And Paul didn't say to the Galatians or the Corinthians, we need to disband this. Everyone go take a break for the summer. Let's try this over again. No, he wrote them letters to call them to love one another to let love reign in their lives, to be reconciled to one another, to be forgiving one another. And if we're to seek joyful fellowship with one another, we need to be the kind of people that can forgive and be forgiven. We need to be the kind of people that don't rest until we're reconciled with others who we've wronged or who've wronged us. We need to be a people that seeks fullness, Completeness of joy. For God has called us into joyful fellowship with Himself and with one another. And third, we need to seek fellowship around the foundational truths of our faith. Now, sometimes this means that we must set aside our opinions about matters that we may value, that may even be important but are secondary at best. I admit I cannot give you a checklist of rules that says, well, this is how you decide if this, ma- this, um, this issue matters, if this issue is important enough to break fellowship with others. But there are some things that we are prone to quarrel about, separate over, that aren't that important in the grand scheme of things. And there are other things that are important enough that we might separate in terms of denominational fellowship with others but we're not going to throw stones at them and call them unbelievers and say they're not christians and they're heretics because they attend a presbyterian or a lutheran church but we do need to make distinctions around those things that are foundational we do need to recognize when someone has rejected the faith altogether by saying things that are flatly against what Scripture teaches concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. We do see that in our own day. We see great many denominations that are struggling with such basic questions about whether or not Christ is truly God, whether or not Christ truly rose from the dead, whether or not Christ was truly born of a virgin. And I tell you, churches that say that that stuff isn't true, that these doctrines aren't true, they're not really churches anymore. They're not really in the truth. John had it in his day, and we have it in ours. And if that kind of thing comes up in our own midst, we need to be ready to leave that fellowship. It's not a fellowship with the triune God. But sometimes we have to set aside our, also our little pet uh, peeves, our little idiosyncratic views. And again, I can't give you a rubric and a, a way to do that in a foolproof way. But one helpful way is to think through a kind of triage system where we recognize that there are first-order issues, Matters of first importance. Things like Christ died and He rose from the dead. That Christ is God incarnate, fully God and eternal. And there are secondary issues, issues about which they're important enough that we wouldn't form a church with another person. We're not Presbyterians for a reason. You see, I'm not going to say that my Presbyterian brother is not a, not a Christian because he believes in infant baptism. But I'm not going to go and start a church with him either, you see. Those are second order issues and we need to be clear about those things. And then there are also third order issues, usually issues about personal preference, where if I go and have a long think about it and I ask myself, is this about my Lord or is this ultimately about me? I realize that it's really all about me. It's all about my preferences. It's all about what I like maybe I need to die a little bit to myself. We need to be people that seek fellowship, that kind of fellowship that's rooted in the foundational truths of our faith, that also has a firm and strong commitment to what Scripture clearly teaches. And yet, one that isn't so quick to break every bond of fellowship that we cut ourselves off from everyone else. That's the kind of people that we ought to be in light of the testimony of John. And hopefully as we progress in this series, as we look through 1 John and the evenings and the weeks to come, we'll see that more clearly as we see what John says and hear what John says and read what John says about who Christ is and what he's done for us. Our lives will be knit together more strongly more closely, as we find our fellowship and our joy in worshiping our risen Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, O Lord, that You would work in our minds and our hearts to give us discernment and give us wisdom, to discern truth from error, to discern faith from unbelief, to discern friend from foe of the cross. And I pray, O Lord, that You would rightly order our thoughts and our hearts and our attitudes so that our focus is set on what, where it ought to be. So that our focus is on rightly proclaiming the truth as it's seen and Expounded from Scripture, but also so that we seek unity with one another, that we seek unity in the body of Christ, that we seek reconciliation where it's necessary, and we seek forgiveness where it's needed, so that we're not people that are marked by strife and are marked by judgment and ridicule and cruelty towards others, not a people that seek to create an exclusive community, but a people that Open the doors wide and call others to embrace your Son by faith, just as we've found grace in the gospel. And yet help us to do that in a way that is courageous and firm and not wishy-washy and not abandoning what is clearly re- revealed in Scripture, O oh Lord. Your word is truth, your spirit is our guide. and we pray in dependence upon your strength and your wisdom and your might, asking that you would work these things in our lives, even now and in the days and the weeks and the years to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.